hello and welcome back to Tales from Wisteria Lane, the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. We're the boyfriends, I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And today we're going to be reviewing season 6, episode 14 of Desperate Housewives, The Glamorous Life. Who doesn't love a glamorous life? In this episode, I'm going to be leading the podcast and Joel's going to give his trivia. Do you have anything to start us off with? Always. So, this episode was directed by Bethany Rooney and written by David Flabot, and the episode aired on the 31st of January 2010. So the episode title translations are, in French, it's couple therapy. In Italian, it's the game of the characters. Arabic is each life is necessitated. And the German is curtain up. So mostly Lynette focused. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So the title of the episode comes from a Stephen Sondheim song of the same name from the musical A Little Night Music. Um, This episode introduces a new character of Robin Gallagher, who I love. I'm a big fan of Robin. I think she's a great character. And she is played by Julie Benz. So most people will know Julie from CSI, Saw 5, Rambo, Dexter, Love Victor. But most importantly, she plays Darla in both Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. Okay. Uh, So in 1996, Julie Benz auditioned for the role of Buffy Summers for the television series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but she did unfortunately lose the role to Sarah Michelle Gellar. However, she was offered the small role of the vampire Darla in the pilot episode, but her performance was so well received that her part was expanded. Brilliant. Yeah. This episode also tackles, very briefly, the topic of recycling, which Angie is obviously very passionate about, but we will get to it. So I did some basic facts on recycling. On average, every person in the UK throws away their body weight in waste every seven weeks. Yeah, that checks out. Around 80% of our general waste in the wheelie bin could have been recycled. Every day, the UK sends over 80 million food and drinks cans to landfill. 275,000 tonnes of plastic are used each year in the UK, and that's around 15 million plastic bottles a day. Jeez. Every Sunday, nearly 90% of newspapers are thrown away in Britain, which is the equivalent of throwing half a million trees into landfill. Now, this isn't all of my recycling trivia. I'll continue on in a second. But whilst we are here hovering on the topic of newspapers, you don't need them. I don't think they'll be around for much longer. I think once a couple of generations are long gone, Mm. they'll definitely be out. I don't think they have much long left. Most newspaper companies or most sort of news outlets now have online where you can just obviously sign up to get an online article. You don't need a physical paper to read anymore. Yeah, and with the rapid growth in news cycles happening on places like Twitter, they're becoming more and more relevant, Mm. which in and of itself is quite worrying when it comes to media literacy and trusting your sources. But that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic, yeah. So, plastic bags, bottles, and packaging that end up in oceans kill one million sea creatures every single year. And if you haven't seen it already, watch Seaspiracy on Netflix. It was great. If all cans in the UK were recycled, we could get rid of 14 million dustbins. And finally, five out of every six glass bottles are just just thrown away. It's just lazy. It is. The glass is 100% recyclable. Yeah, just rinse it out. Yeah. It's not hard. Like Mrs. Not, Kinsky. No, it's not hard at all. So those are some basic general facts of recycling in the UK. Now, if you are interested in sort of being better to the planet, then what I would suggest is you go onto YouTube and watch videos by Lena Norms, who B watches a lot of, and I tend to watch in the background because B's quite a YouTube person and I'm not. Yeah. Um, and she does an awful lot to explain the truths with regards to taking care of the planet and talking about what your average person can do if they have an interest 
invest in it but just feel like because they're one person maybe they're limited yeah Leela Leela is pretty good wasn't expecting that shout out no well I just I remember you watching a video where she was tackling off some recycling facts the other week so anyway so anyway on this day Live Nation and Ticketmaster complete their merger following an agreement with the United States Department of Justice to divest some interests now our trivia (laughs) always feels so timely doesn't it it really does I had to include that because well with everything that happened with miss swift we've only just had that taylor swift ticket scandal yeah fantastic and years ago when we wanted to see alanis when such pretty forks in the road came out yeah couldn't do it no couldn't do it couldn't afford it it was mental so ethiopian airlines flight 409 with 85 passengers on board crashes into the mediterranean sea after taking off from beirut Gordon Park, the convicted murderer in the Lady in the Lake trial, is found hanged in his prison cell in Garth Prison, Lancashire, in an apparent suicide. Oh dear. Now, the Lady in the Lake, we aren't obviously a murder podcast, but I was intrigued by the name of Lady in the Lake. Because I was like, ooh, that sounds like mysterious. Sounds Arthurian, like Merlin and Arthur and stuff. Yeah. So the Lady in the Lake trial was a 2005 murder case in which Gordon Park, a retired teacher from Lease near Barrow in Furness in Cumbria, was jailed for life for the 1976 murder of his first wife, Carol Ann, who went missing on the 17th of July and was never seen alive again by her family. In 1997, her body was discovered by divers in Coniston Water and Gordon Park was arrested on suspicion of her murder. Reputedly, he said, oh dear, after being informed they'd found her body. Well, rest in peace, Carol Ann. Exactly. Um, so James Cameron's Avatar becomes the highest grossing film of all time, not accounting for inflation, surpassing his 1997's Titanic. Pop star Susan Boyle is shocked but unharmed after disturbing an intruder at her house in Scotland as she returns from recording her part for Simon Cowell's charity single for Haiti. Oh God, yeah. how terrifying. Ireland is hit by two earthquakes over a 24-hour period described as unusual by experts. Mm. Steve Jobs, rest in peace, unveils the Apple iPad. Uh, J.D. Salinger, author of the novel The Catcher in the Rye, dies at the age of 91. Teenager Darlene Etienne is pulled alive from the rubble of Port-au-Prince after the Haiti earthquake, happy but dehydrated, 16 days after being buried, having spent the time drinking Coca-Cola and water from a bath. From a bath? Yep. And finally, Haiti acknowledges the immediate international assistance it received from Cuba, the Dominican Republic, and Venezuela following the recent earthquake and confirms the death toll had reached 150,000. Oh, that's a lot. That is a lot. I'm finally sorry. The United States number one song is still TikTok by Key Dollar Sign Ha, and the United Kingdom is Fireflies by Our City. Oh, cool. We got there. We got there. We got there, gal. <laughs> that was a great song. I remember Fireflies, and the music video was so weird as well. Uh, so those uh, that's all my trivia. Okay, so let's get into the episode, and hopefully that's the last time I have to hear about Avatar. Yeah. Previously, Susan became part owner of a strip club following Carl's death. Lynette and Tom began doing therapy, couples therapy. Angie met Danny's new girlfriend and didn't like her. Mm -hmm. And Bree struggled to get Orson to clean himself and use his manners, but eventually he did. Speaking of Orson, Orson is smiling again and this worries Brie, so apparently she'll just never be happy. (laughs) I'd freak out too if I saw that smile. Like when we saw it on screen, there was something so like manufactured about it. It didn't feel like a legitimate smile and it honestly felt like that would be the last thing I see before I die. I completely understand. But it was funny the way that Mary Alice said it. Like, oh, he's smiling again and Brie didn't like that. Yeah, right. (laughs) She's scared. (laughs) Bree worries that something is terribly wrong and then comes home to find Orson giving away a bunch of stuff to the neighbours. But not just leg stuff, but also CDs, headphones, cameras, just all sorts. Stuff that he can still use, even when he's, you know, bound by a wheelchair. Pretty much everything. Yeah. 
Bree talks to him for a moment, and then Mary Alice lets us know that he's decided to kill himself. Yeah. Uh, this isn't cool. Bree was right to call the husband out. They're all there like, well, he seems fine. We assumed he'd talk to you about it. No, guys, come on. Yeah, they have very little emotional intelligence. Yeah. This is a quick content warning that this whole episode has a lot of talk about suicide for all of Bree's story. That is true. That is true. And the comedic timing of Tom in this scene, when Bree's like, I'm surprised you weren't just rummaging around through his closets. Yep. And they, he's, he's sneaky. <laughs> he is sneaky. The way and that he just... comes down in the back of the shot in the in the suit and then just And then just runs turns back. around as soon as he hears Bree. But everyone walks out. Tom's stuck upstairs. He's still yeah. got to get changed. I guess he can sneak down. Yeah, he'd go down the trellis. So Bree finds a draft of Orson's suicide note on his laptop. <laughs> And Orson tries to tell her that he's ready to die and he's had a good life. Bree then says she forbids him from killing himself and that she'll be with him every hour of every day. And then Orson says he'll give her time to adjust to it, but it's going to happen. I mean, it's very rude to read a man's draft S-word note. True, but then again, why are you leaving out the draft suicide note, mate? Yeah, he's just leaving it there on the laptop. And has Orson had a good life? He says he's had a good life, but I question this because his mother was an awful controlling woman who forced him to marry someone he didn't like, pretended to murder the woman he did like, and then help frame him for the murder, try to kill one of his friends, and then he, you know, nearly kill his new wife. And he's been in prison for like five years? Yeah. Although he had some nice times with Brie. So he did have some nice times with Brie. But he's like, I've lived a good life. And I'm like, none of that sounds good. No. The majority of your life sounds like it was hassle. Bree comes home and is worried to find that Roy is asleep. So maybe Orson has gone off and killed himself while Roy's asleep. Mm. But luckily he put a broom through the wheels of Orson's chair so he couldn't just roll off. Like, what the fuck, Roy? <laughs> Don't worry, I put him in the linen closet and stuck a broom for his spokes. That guy is the worst. <laughs> he's just, he's, oh my god. She then rolls him into the lounge where they have some other wheelchair-bound guests who want to talk to him about wheelchair life. Yeah, and how it's, you know, it's not a death sentence. They still live and, um... Yeah. Not a death sentence. It's not a death sentence. <laughs> of course it's not. <laughs> yeah, but people find, a lot of people do find that when they're bound to a wheelchair, their life is over. And we have a clip. I know you think there's no reason to go on living because you're paralyzed. So you thought, hey, you know what might cheer him up? Two more paralyzed guys. Please just hear them out. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to make some tea. So your wife tells us you're in a pretty negative place. Well, that's to be expected, but eventually... Look, I know you mean well, but I don't need a handicapped pep talk. Hey, we're not handicapped. We're handicapable. Oh, Lord. We play basketball, dance, we make love. And I hope you're very happy together. I, unfortunately, don't have someone to join me on this journey. You have a wife who clearly loves you. Wow. Paralyzed and blind. You must always be the first one to board the plane. I don't know what it is, but Orson is quick all of a sudden. It's like he's lost his ability to walk and it's automatically sharpened his wit. He knows he's going to die. So all of those little like social barriers, they're down. Yeah. He's just going in. He don't in. care. He just, he just don't care. Do you know what stung? What stung? Idiot. Do you know what sting we haven't played in a while? Oh, yes. I love to read. That one. That one. Oh, yeah, we don't we don't use these stings enough. They're just kind of there. But Oh, my God. Orson's laying into the men. But in all fairness, when they said we're handy capable. Even I rolled my eyes. I was like, I was like gross. Oh, oh, good Lord. <laughs> but like, it's I can see why Bree's done this. Because, you know, showing him someone that has been through what he's been through and come out the other side. And, you know, they still get to have sex and play basketball and dance and what have you. What, what all the stuff they said she probably thinks could be quite beneficial. Yeah. I can't imagine what it 
feels like really to suddenly wind up in a wheelchair like it happens you you don't do anything i know right but that's through (laughs) choice like i choose to sit my ass on that sofa and not get up i'd rather dehydrate than get up to the kitchen and grab a drink like yeah i choose that but like my, my granddad ended up in a wheelchair he was like a week away from retirement and then he caught something i don't really know i was quite young when it all happened but he was a week away from retirement then he went to work one day caught something at work and then was bound to do a wheelchair like he couldn't move anything from the neck down he could only move his neck his head it's just so rough and he was just about to just literally chill and enjoy the last moments of like his life the last decade or so yeah it was so close to retirement and I, i i didn't see anything but a happy wonderful person and it might be because i was young and so i was kept from it and all of that so I, I don't know maybe he really did have a really hard time and I would be surprised if I ever found out that he didn't have a hard time and he just sort of like took it on the chin and was like oh well shit happens but yeah it's it's not a death sentence you can still live a wonderful life I get what you mean though yeah so they have some very sassy chat and then Orson says that Brie is with him out of obligation and she struggles to admit that she doesn't actually love him yeah and the guests are gagged probably should have mentioned that first Brie why guess in case it comes out yeah that's fine guests don't need to know the ins and outs they just need to know that he's found himself in a wheelchair and he's sad the next day Brie hands Orson a suit for an anniversary party they've been invited to but apparently he forgot all about it because he thought he'd be dead by now yeah so that's fair at the party, Orson decides to skip out on the speeches, but Brie finds the anniversary speeches and the dance very sweet. She then looks outside to find Orson wheeling himself towards the pool. <laughs> she stops him, and when he asks why she won't let him die, she says about the old people inside who have had their rough times but stuck for it, and then she admits that she loved him once and she wants to recapture what they once had. She begs him to stay, and they have a nice emotional kiss. Kiss. Where the camera makes it look like they're almost about to fall into the pool anyway. That would have been great. That would have been so funny. It was a very emotional ending i liked it it was satisfying yeah it was okay or i just i mean obviously this is all satire i know when people feel like they want to end things they don't really think about anything other than how they're gonna do it and what have you but doing it at someone else's anniversary party is just rude (laughs) yes a little bit (laughs) like if it doesn't put a downer on the day i don't know what will but i like how this has gone this particular story and in terms of Orson being redeemed or like doing something interesting with that character this is a good way to lean yeah hopefully they stick with it because if Carl McLaughlin's gonna stay around I just can't stand the Orson that we've had mm. let's move on to Susan so Susan is signing away her part of the strip club and she even gets a shirt out of it I know <laughs> She says bye to one of the strippers on the way out, Robin, and is surprised that she would read something so profound as Moby Dick rather than, like, a magazine, I imagine. Oh, it's not what you think. It's about a whale. Yeah, I I know. (laughs) You know, Susan, all sorts of people read. Yeah, I know. What the fuck? We get to know a little bit about her, and she wanted to become a teacher, but life didn't work out that way for her. So Susan convinces her that if stripping makes her unhappy, she should get a job elsewhere and it's never too late susan's right i mean look at alan rickman rest in peace exactly we've had this conversation so many times in the show but yeah. like Catherine Houston as karen that's it late yeah. in life alan rickman late in life like you know tons of people later possibly the next day robin comes over to tell susan that she quit her job so happy days and then she says what do i do now 
and Susan is completely surprised to find that Robin has no job lined up and no savings. Following on from this, Susan is talking to Mike and it becomes clear that Susan's going to help her find a job as she feels responsible for the situation. They see how, how well she gets on with MJ and thinks that maybe she should apply for the teaching assistant job at the school. Well, that's what she told Susan she was learning to do before you know, her family had financial troubles. Yeah. But Susan, she says that Susan's her new role model. Yeah. So she's like, my old mo- role model was Candy at the club, but she OD'd. I don't know, but Susan being your role model, that's pr- that's a low bar. Yeah, but Susan's given her a lot of good, of good advice so far to a certain extent. I think she seemed a lot brighter before the whole quitting the job thing. So I think Susan's a bit surprised. Well, yeah, she was there reading Moby Dick. Mm. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, I've got no savings. I just quit my job because she told me to. What do I do now? Girl. That's rough. Uh, That's uh, rough. You um, should always have a job lined up or at least some savings to get you for a few months. Yeah. MJ is the horniest five-year-old I've ever seen. And that was a weird sentence, just FYI. Yeah, I don't like when they do this to kids in shows. It makes me extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. I just don't like it. And then everyone's like, oh, look at him. It's his first crush. Oh. This isn't a crush. This is him being creepy. He's being a creepy old man in a child's body. Yeah. And I don't like it. Yeah. Susan and Robin are at school with Robin dressed up all nice for work, but also she kind of looks like a male fantasy. <laughs> she does. She's that cliche like teacher assistant. She's Stacy's mom, you know, the music video for Stacy's mom or the music video for Hot for Teacher. Yeah, exactly. She's like that. So Robin thanks Susan for taking a chance on her. And then one of the dads walks in late with his kid and he recognizes Robin, but he can't place her until he sees her walking in her little skirt. Following this, Susan gets called into the headmaster's office, who says that the dad is a major donor to the school, and apparently reported that Susan's assistant was a stripper. Now this is going to be a common theme for the next few episodes, where everyone's referring to Robin as the stripper. Yeah, I feel like they're making a very specific commentary. Yeah. And like, Robin is such a sweetheart, when she like, is really honest and open with Susan about, you know, how no one's taking a chance and she really appreciates Susan. Like, you can really tell that no one has believed in Robin before. Yeah, Susan's like her, kind of like a mummy figure to her. Yeah. She even calls her Mrs. D. I'm quite curious as to her backstory. Yeah, I, I do wish we get more of it. So, Susan is mad that Robin got fired. And the absolute crap it is when the dad is the one who went to the strip club. And then she asks Mike if she can stay with them for a bit. He says no at first, worried that it's a trap. But then agrees when Susan says that they should be good people and walk the walk and all that good stuff. And here is another moment where Mike, where he's like, are you trying to tell me that you are you want me to say yes to allowing an ex-stripper to move in with us? No, I'm saying I want you to say yes to allowing Robin to move in with us. And Mike, how, how would Mike like it if every time he bumped into someone, they just called him the ex-con? Exactly. They should have brought that up because that is also a thing. And yeah. they could have used that in the script. They could have used that in the script. It's but f- I would have thought that Mike would have been more empathetic to Robin because he will have been down that situation where people are, would refer to him as the ex-con especially when he's only just come out of prison and he's trying to get back on his feet and what have you yeah he's literally just gone to prison again (laughs) yeah yeah but it's so disgusting that the dad got her fired because she used to be a stripper Mm. which also kind of means you're admitting that you go to the strip clubs and yeah there's a lot of societal bullshit in this scene yeah he's rich he's white he can like it's fine for him i don't get it like what's the problem i don't want my kids to be around someone that used to be a stripper even though it's fine for me to go to a strip club and be around people that are strippers i don't get it it's such bullshit yeah there's not much i can say on it it's awful poor robin (laughs) that yeah that's literally all we can say like poor robin poor anyone that's been in this situation because it's, it's a very real thing in life for people that maybe do have a hard time or are in a job that is perceived as not 
a great career move by society who are then trying to leave it but find themselves having to go crawling back because every time they try to leave they can't yeah so that gives her a some options which are non-face-to-face jobs or getting a job outside of a 10 to 15 mile radius just in case just well yeah exactly so lynette and tom are at their therapy and discussing a time that lynette stuck up for tom against another driver and apparently tom was emasculated and the therapist says that she should let him take the wheel once in a while pun not intended Naturally, Lynette feels that she's always being attacked and wants to see another therapist, but Tom goes back to grab his keys and overhears that the therapist is in a play. I've just called her the therapist the whole time because I've forgotten her name. Have you got her name? It's Dr. Graham. Dr. But Graham. But I call her various things throughout because I every now and again I remember her name and then forget it. <laughs> like in the, my notes here it says, Dr. What's her name? Oh, brilliant. Okay. So yeah, Dr. What's her name is apparently in a community theatre thing and now they're both invited. I don't blame Lynette for reacting this way. Like, I'd feel the same way if every time the therapist corrected my behaviour, my partner pulled a face, the same face that Tom pulled, which was like, oh, yeah, see, like, I'm right, Lynette's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And, like, Dr. What's-Her-Name has to reiterate to Lynette that it's not a competition and nobody's keeping score, but judging by the face Tom pulled, it's a competition to him as well. It certainly feels like someone's winning, though. It doesn't feel very unbiased. It feels very much like, from what we've seen at least, because we haven't seen the full picture, mind you, Mm. and it is mostly from Lynette's perspective as the desperate housewife. Yeah. But it very much feels like she's constantly saying that Lynette's in the wrong, rather than saying, Lynette, you could have let Tom take the wheel, but Tom, maybe you should also appreciate what Lynette's thought process is here. Like, it's only one-sided. Yeah, because at the moment, all we're really hearing about is the fact that Tom is a pussy, (laughs) and he'll say shit, but then when he's in the moment, he won't say shit, and then Lynette will end up having to be the to to step in and say the very thing that Tom was wanting to say, but is too nice to do it. They're both at the therapist lady's play, and Lynette teases him that he's being a big old teacher's pet. He is. He says that she just doesn't like her because she can't take criticism, which Lynette disagrees with. And then they both shut up as therapist lady makes her stage debut. He's that much of a kiss ass. he knows exactly where her entrance is. I know. Also, $20 chocolates, or was it $40? $40. $40 on a box of chocolate? I swear it was $40. And also, Tom's there like, Lynette, you can't take constructive criticism. And then the woman sitting in front like you're still talking (laughs) you're still annoying (laughs) i've never related to lynette more in that moment (laughs) so i must give credit to the actress like i think we've said it before in this podcast or at least i have it takes a lot to have to act badly in a believable way yeah hilariously she's terrible yeah like when you're a good actress you're a or actor you're you're good and you know you're good but it's not easy to be good but have to (laughs) act badly mm. like it's just it's a really it's a really weird headspace it's a very to, delicate line it is and it's a weird headspace to have to get into so they get home and they have a laugh about how bad the play was and then argue about whether or not to see her again because Lynette thinks it's a bit too weird to take therapy from someone who is as bad at acting as she is mm. And Tom thinks that it's stupid and says that they will be seeing her again. I do agree with Tom. Oh, yeah, because she's she's just trying to find an excuse, which is, is outside of the realm of reasonable. Yeah, like uh, Lynette's just being really overdramatic because just because she was a bad actor doesn't mean that she's a bad therapist or she's bad in her career. They really you know? camped up how bad she was, though. They said that she burped in a death scene. No, oh, I know. What the hell? Why didn't we see that? And when Tom walks through the door and sees, is it Parker? I can't remember which one he sees now. I'm pretty yeah, sure it's Parker. Parker. Um, and he's like, Lincoln had a better time at the theatre. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> there are another therapy session and Lynette doesn't seem to be taking the therapist's 
musings, shall we say. Mm. She asks what's up, and Tom tries to make something up, but Lynette just takes the opportunity to tell her that the play was awful, and that she's lost confidence in her as a therapist. But here, in this moment, this is the perfect moment for Lynette to chime up and say, this is why, Tom, I don't think she's a good therapist for us. Because how come Tom can speak up for Lynette, but Lynette's not allowed to speak up for Tom? <laughs> yeah. Let the lady speak. Let, why, why can you speak for Lynette? And why is, you know, Dr. What's-Her-Name perfectly happy for you to speak to Lynette? Just admit that you guys want to have sex. Yeah, just admit that you don't like Lynette. Yeah. <laughs> so therapist lady says that Lynette does this in her marriage. She criticizes without specifics. And apparently that's the coward's way out, which was a an interesting thing for a therapist to say. And also even Tom knew that that was not a smart move. Nope. Like when she calls Lynette a coward and then Tom just kind of puts his hand to his mouth and sits back. Like even Tom knew that she'd opened the floodgates now. Like you've called Lynette a coward and that, that's it. Like cards are off the table for Lynette. She's no longer going to try and tiptoe around this issue. So Lynette spells it out to her. She stunk in the play. And she actually gets praised for her honesty. She then asks what Tom thinks. And he says that he thought she was great. <laughs> he is so fake. Lynette then says he always gets to be the good guy. And she always has to be the bad guy. And that he loves it that way. And seems to be very emotional at this. So Tom says that she's right. He likes to be liked. And lets her be the bad guy. And he apologises to her. And then says that the therapist was really bad in the play. So he's actually honest in the moment. Thank God. Yeah. Your performance was aggressively bad. Yeah. At one point during the second act, I started to choke on a mint, and I thought about not fighting it. They both agree that they've had a breakthrough, and then the therapist congratulates them and tells them to get the hell out of her office. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. This was a breakthrough for them. Yes. And it was really good. And then it even had Lynette apologising. Lynette even apologised to Dr. Graham and was like, I'm sorry, you're a wonderful therapist. She ain't. But she's not. And what I will say is... Not every therapist is a perfect fit for a person. Yeah, okay? she's you... not a wonderful therapist. The only reason that this honesty came out from both of them was because Lynette... Forced it out. Emotion ...got emotional and let out her feelings, but that's not because of the therapist. No. Dr. Graham is very good at getting people to open up and talk, and that's a really good trait to have, but I do think that she needs a little bit more training on what Tact. she's doing. Yeah. On tact. Tact. That's what she needs training on. <laughs> yes, she needs to maybe learn to stop being so opinionated with her clients yeah she can't just sit there pointing at the net and be like you're a dirty bitch she's like, she reminds she's kind of a woman that doesn't like other women she is that's what yeah. this gives me yeah it does give that energy very much so angie has seen mrs kinski across the road and decides to be the garbage police as, as they put it mm. as the lady clearly can't be bothered to separate her recycling properly so angie tries to say that she should think about the future but mrs kinski is one of those really selfish people who doesn't care about things that don't affect her she's like well i'll be dead by the time that any of this happens <laughs> right she is the poster child for conservatives like i don't care about this because it doesn't affect me so naturally having been an eco-terrorist nick worries that angie might do something bad and tries to convince her not to do that yeah well so caring caring about something like this doesn't go away overnight no, and she's very passionate about the environment, even to the point where she's willing to do to break the law for it, which yeah. I commend. And I love, love that they made Angie an eco-terrorist, like mm. an environmental terrorist, as opposed to just like any old terrorist. Like they, they could have left it ambiguous. They could have just left it as terrorist and had that as a blanket statement. And I do, I do wish that there was more stuff like this with the the main cast, the main housewives, and Angie. Yeah, because I think it would be interesting to have her call out some of Susan's things, or yeah, Lynette's or Breeze or Gabby. The problem with this is it does feel like it's 
become a little bit out of left field that suddenly she cares about recycling. It's a bit of a, an odd sort of one-off thing because we don't really see Mrs. Kinski that much. No, we don't. No. So the, I do think they missed a trick with um, including her with the other housewives and calling them calling would, them out. It would have been nice for them to learn from yeah. some of their mistakes. Too. Like they, they could have done it more subtly in background, sort of like sort of smaller scenes in past episodes. So Gabby goes to Angie's to grab Anna and instantly worries that Angie has left them alone upstairs, Anna and Danny that is. After shouting for Anna to come down, Angie gives Gabby a talk about teen sex and we have a clip. So, you worried they might be doing it? Yeah. What I don't get is why you're not worried. They are healthy, red-blooded kids. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. So we say nothing and just fluff their pillows? No, we make sure they don't do anything stupid. Have you gotten Anna birth control? I make her spend time with Juanita and Celia. I was hoping that would do it. Come on, Gabby. You, you have to talk to her about safe sex, condoms. She's only 17. She's too young. Oh. How old were you when you first did it? Anna, hurry up! Gotta hit the pharmacy, too! Do you reckon that was a little hint at a future storyline with Gabby, that, that last comment? Oh, mm-hmm, yes. Like, okay... Gabby doesn't think she should be talking to Anna about sexual health, safe sex practices and stuff because she's too young. At 17. Girl, get them while while they're young. What the hell? Like, guys, it is vital that you teach your children about safe sex, sexual health, protection, all of that sort of stuff. Like, it might be an uncomfortable conversation, but you can't guarantee that schools will teach them adequately. Yeah, and 17 really isn't too young. Like, she's she's definitely started puberty already. Yeah. long past that like come on granted granted the legal age of um consent in the uk is 16 but frankly when it comes to discussing sexual health legal age of consent does not matter because people are going to do what they're going to do no you want them to be prepared you know yeah of course but what what i'm trying to say is obviously the age in america is a little bit older so people in America might think they have slightly more time than to UK honest, to rediscuss it, but there unre- isn't it's any. It's unrealistic. There isn't, yeah, it is unrealistic. Like, And what I've just said about teaching, ensuring, you know, teaching all of that stuff is especially true for parents of kids with LGBTQ plus, you know, children. Well, yeah, I mean, look at the freaking AIDS pandemic. Yeah. Schools rarely teach sexual health for um, homosexual relationships or, you know, relationships for LGBTQ plus students. And I certainly didn't get any sex education at school. And with the current climate for the community right now, it's imperative that as parents, you ensure that your kids are educated and safe because your kids will thank you later down the line. You're not stopping your kids from not having queer sex. No. You're just open the, opening them up to hurting themselves, doing things dangerously or stupidly, yeah. and possibly getting groomed and such because they don't know about it. No, well, good sex education has been proven to reduce unplanned pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, cases in grooming, and so on and so forth. Exactly. So it is absolutely vital that if even if you as a parent maybe don't know about it, you get out there and educate yourself. So later... Carlos asks why Gabby has condoms, and she tells him why. And Carlos reacts very poorly, saying about how he'll kill Danny and bury him. So Gabby repeats what Angie said about nature taking its course, but Carlos tries to scare her, saying that she's the one who'll have to worry about the baby if Anna gets pregnant, as he'll be in prison for Danny's murder. And you know he'd murder Danny, because we've seen that Carlos can have anger issues. So Gabby approaches Anna and asks if she's happy, as her and Carlos have begun to see her as a daughter. And this is just a load of bullshit, guys, but she Anna can see it. Yeah. She then says that she wants to have a talk about the birds and the bees, but does it in a Gabby way. So instead of talking about safe sex and stuff like that, she gives her an unsigned check to get her through modelling school and enough for renting a pretty decent flat. And she says that she'll sign it if she can manage to 
not have sex. She doesn't say not get pregnant. She just says not have sex. Yeah. And Anna obviously accepts the check and assures that now she is very happy. Okay, like Gabby. What, Gabby is such a good parent because no, she not. because she knows exactly what Anna will pay attention to and care about. But she's that's not why telling she's her parent. to be safe and not get pregnant. She's telling her don't have sex. I'm like Gabby, that's so unrealistic. Yeah, I know. We'll we'll get to that. But Gabby is a good parent in that she knows exactly what Anna will react to she knows what will will yep. get on it interested money because even then gabby's like i could sit here and preach to you about safe sex and waiting until you're married and what have you now we'll just go right over anna's head anna's at that age and she doesn't see gabby and carlos as you know that much of a parental figure that she's like oh i'll fucking do what i'm gonna do i've already had sex once i'm i don't need you to tell me about it blah so blah blah the last person that anna wants to hear safe sex talks and any sex talk from is her catholic adoptive parents yeah but it is so unrealistic to expect teenagers to be abstinent. At that time in their lives, kids are more likely to have sex than if you're like 30. Gabby lives in her own world if she really thinks that Anna's not just going to take that check and lie her whole way to that flat. Yeah, I know. What the <laughs> hell? She's just in her own little bubble, bless her. So Gabby goes upstairs to bathe her children, and Anna says that her and Danny are just going to do some studying. But then they proceed to make out in the dark. Well, actually, Danny says, oh, well, what are you doing? Like, you made your aunt a promise, which I think is quite cute that Anna actually told Danny about that. And that Danny was, like, kind of following through with that in yeah, a way. Yeah, like, that was fa- nice. fair enough. But... What, what, Anna, what Anna did say was, I told her I wouldn't have sex. I didn't tell her you wouldn't, which implies that they were going to be doing more stuff if stuff didn't happen. But still, like, Anna's not wrong. Yeah, well, credit to Anna, she's not wrong. But this still isn't the smartest thing to do, especially when your nieces are only upstairs. Carlos then comes home and freaks out about it and pushes Danny against the wall, which is not a good look. No. Angie sees this from outside as she's trying to rearrange Mrs. McKinsky's rubbish and storms in and threatens to kill Carlos if he ever touches Danny again after throwing a really nice crystal vase, which really annoys Gabby. <laughs> Wasn't that the first one that Gabby bought when Carlos just got his job back? I think so, maybe. Yeah. And I was like, no, not the face. They kind of add like... Angie is some sort of crazy person, but I quite—I thought this was quite a realistic reaction. Absolutely. The only crazy thing that Angie did was rummage through her neighbor's bins and not break down those boxes. Yeah, but your mum would do that. Yeah, she would do that. <laughs> you know? Um, but she wouldn't be doing it for recycling. She'd be doing it for food for the foxes. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Angie, for someone that cares so much about recycling, why aren't you breaking down those boxes, girl? Yeah, make room. Yeah. So this episode after this point kind of implies that Angie might be a bad, crazy person, but Carlos mm. is clearly the bad, crazy person. He just threatened a child. He's just thrown a teenager into the wall. Yeah, he needs to calm the fuck down. Seriously. Like, not Why cute, Carlos. Why has he not mellowed out after the whole blindness bullshit? Yeah, and having his own kids. Like, not cute, Carlos. No. If Carlos had a son, I reckon he'd be different. So Angie then storms out with Danny, and Mrs. Kinski chooses now, of all times, to make fun of Angie, purposely mixing up the recycling and the rubbish back to how it was. So Angie storms over to her and kicks over the bins before Danny manages to sort of sashay her away and they do a walk-off. Suck it, Earth. Like, I don't blame Angie. Like, she's had a rough night and... This will give Kinski a little bit, a bit of a lesson. And she this, knows not yeah. to try her now. And then this selfish cow just tries to pull some shit. Yeah, absolutely not. Like no, Kin- Kinski knows not to try Angie now. In all fairness, she's lucky she didn't get a smack. Yeah, I know. Gabby and Carlos are going over to Angie's to apologise, even though Carlos doesn't quite understand what he did wrong, which again annoyed me. I'm like, is it not obvious what you did wrong? You pushed a child against a freaking wall. But okay. Yeah. And they overhear an argument between Angie and Nick. They then start to eavesdrop and eat the cookies that they brought over. And Angie and Nick argue about Angie's overreacting to stuff. And then Nick says that if people start finding out about them, they're done. 
which is intriguing for Gabby and Carlos. Yeah, because this rock we're hiding under is not that big. I, yeah, what did they mean? Ooh. And that was the end of Gabby's story and Angie's story and the end of the episode. Yep. Yeah. Now let's move on to the next segment where we're going to talk about Joel's picks for the gayest and the straightest moments. So what do you have for gayest moment? My award for gayest moment. It goes to Robin for striding on those tables. (laughs) Yeah, that was hilarious. That was fierce. She wasn't even looking where she was walking. She was just looking dead ahead, which is probably what gave it away. Muscle memory. Because she bitch just, she just knew. She was like, yeah, I'm walking on tables. I used to do that all the fucking time. So what? Like, and the, the strut, she was there in her head, like, param, param, I hear it and I know. <laughs> she looked fierce in her hot for teacher costume that she was wearing. Yeah, the skirt and blazer. Yeah. Mm. And then what do you have for straightest moment? My award for straightest moment. It goes to that guy, that what? parent. Oh, the dad. The dad, who just straight up was perfectly capable of just admitting that he'd been to a strip club and he'd met that person at a strip club. Yo, I go to strip clubs all the time, but a stripper are my children. Yeah, I know. Oh, oh, oh. Then, oh, then, oh, then, oh, then, then they'll grow up and go to strip clubs. Yeah. Like, so it, it goes to him because he clearly, like, that's, that's straight, that's peak straight energy right there. Him just being like, yeah, so what? I go to a strip club and you can't judge me for it. I'm a heterosexual man. Hypocritical, double standard, all that. Yeah. Mm. And now we move on to B's awards for best and worst parent. So who do you have for the best parent? So my award for... Best parent of the episode. Goes to Angie for teaching Danny about safe sex and then stopping Carlos from murdering him or throwing him through the wall. And teaching him about recycling. Or whatever he was going to do. Yeah. (laughs) Good job. Good job, Angie. You earned that. Yeah. And who do you have for the worst parent? My award for... Worst parent of the episode... I gave this to Carlos for being so unnecessarily violent towards Danny and right in front of Anna. Yeah, right. It's not setting a very good example for your adoptive daughter, is it? And like refusing to help Gabby educate Anna with regards to safe sex and just immediately tell Gabby that she just has to ensure that Anna doesn't have sex. And just being like, I don't see what I did wrong. I yeah. don't understand. And then trying to steal one of the cookies off the plate. Yeah. Brain don't work good. Mm. <laughs> So, bravo, bravo, fucking bravo. Indeed. So, that was Season 6, Episode 14, The Glamorous Life. If anyone has any questions, queries, comments, or theories, where can they find us? You can find us on Instagram at BoyfriendsReview, and you can find us on Twitter at BFSReview. We've also got email, which is BoyfriendsReview at Outlook.com, and the podcast artwork is done by our friend Louis, who is on Instagram at DocRedMuckDesign, and there's a link to his Etsy page where he does commissions. Yes. Join us next time when we'll be back in your ear holes with Season 6, Episode 15. Lovely. Lovely. See you then. Bye.